Welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, a lighthearted podcast that takes a revealing look at a career in the entertainment industry, featuring stories and conversations with those on stage and backstage, on screen and behind the scenes. To keep up with all the guests and episodes, go to the website, winmepodcast.com. There you will find ways to follow and connect via Twitter and Instagram, as well as ways to support and donate to this podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and this is Why I'll Never Make It. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 31, as well as welcome to spring. Winter ended just a few days ago, and I don't know about you, but I am so glad to put the cold months behind us and have some warm weather to look forward to. Recently, I found a blog post that first introduced me to today's guest, and that post was called Failing Our Singers. The title caught my eye, and it talks about the list of do's and don'ts, both real and imagined, that affect us as performers. We get it into our heads what we can and can't do, and and this affects the way that we audition and ultimately the way that we perform. Amy Marie Stewart wrote that blog as a way to combat these expectations. And she's here today to talk about how those affect not only herself, but all of us in the way that we approach our work. She has spent most of her career as an actress and singer, but currently focuses on teaching and is the founder of Theory Works, a service that helps us singers more easily handle the demands of learning music. And she started the Facebook group, Accompanist Connection, which I have used myself many times when I'm looking for an accompanist or or a pianist to go over music or play for me. So I am thrilled to have her on the show today to share her insights that not only apply to us singers, but to everyone in front of the table and behind the table in those audition rooms. Amy, thank you so much for letting me into your studio. Of course, and welcome. This this is where all the magic happens, isn't it? It is where all the magic happens, yeah. And how long have you been in this studio? So I've been in this studio now for about two years, and I took over the lease myself about a year ago. So um, yeah, I've been here at the Voice Studio just south of Carnegie Hall for yeah a couple of years now. Yeah, I mean it's a good yeah. good area to be in. It's you a know, great Carnegie place to Hall be. right there, <laughs> just north of most of the tourists, and that is a huge draw. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because most of the tourists go go south, exactly. you know, towards the uh, or, or downtown, as they say right, in New York. Right, right, exactly. Um, so so tell me a little bit about your how you got into teaching and what that's been like for you. So I first started teaching almost by happenstance. Um, The first gigs that I booked after graduating with my master's in opera were actually not. um, So I crossed over to musical theater shortly after graduating, about two or three years after. And when I started auditioning, I thought I was going to go directly into, of course, like leading lady sopranos. And the first shows that I did were more like rock musicals. And then I would come back and I would go back and sing some classical music. How was that going back and forth between the classical world and this rock pop world? Honestly, I think it's it's really instructive for singers. I think a thing that uh, certainly conservatories and universities could fold in for undergraduate voice students is actually doing more like quote unquote cross training in multiple genres and styles. 
Yeah. I think that that's really helpful for singers. For me, I felt like I didn't fully understand how to sing operatically until I learned how to use my chest voice. It kind of felt like I had this new perception of singing in 3D as opposed to kind of being limited. Right. Um, so I think it's a really great thing to be able to like bounce back and forth. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, because something that my, my own voice teacher mm -hmm. tries to Im impress upon me is that no matter what genre you're singing, the the air quality is still the same. The way you support yourself, exactly. the ha how, how easily you let the notes come out is still the same. Exactly. It's all the same technique. The only thing that changes genre from genre, it, from genre to genre is style. Right. You change the style, but the technique itself is always the same. Right. And yeah. so for, for yourself in mm -hmm. bridging that gap between the classical world and the pop world, right. did you find one that was, I guess, maybe easier for you or one that you enjoyed more? Enjoyed more, no, just like enjoyed in a different way. So in the classical world, the emphasis is totally on like music first. So it's not that you're not telling a story. It's just that the way in which that you're telling a story is through the music. Whereas when you go and you do a musical, obviously you're using music to tell that story as well. But the primary sort of endeavor is to tell the story most effectively. Right, right. The, the emotion behind it, the, the character choices. Exactly, and really text-driven in a way where, like in opera, the, the thing that tells the story the most clearly is the sweep of a vocal line as opposed to necessarily the text. Yeah, um, yeah because yeah. the composers were all about whether it's the strings underneath you or the voice itself, it was all about eliciting an emotion through that music. Right, like the way that Mimi tells Rodolfo that she really loves him is through the sweeping legato of her high notes and, and her phrasing, as opposed to necessarily the verbiage that she selects in, you know, in order to say that to him. Right. So going into an environment where dealing with the conductor and really diving into the music in such a detail-oriented way, I really love doing that with classical music. And then going back to musicals, I really love taking a step back and being more text-driven and that kind of going back and forth. I, I really love that sort of difference. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about the music world because it made me mm -hmm. think of the acting world and like yeah. stage versus on camera. For the, sure. The, the, the foundation, again, is the same, but the technique and how you present something mm -hmm. is, is very different. Totally. Based, based upon that medium. Yeah. And so for yourself, you started out as, as a performer, yes. and what exactly got you into, you know what, I'm gonna teach other people to do this. <laughs> well, it was mainly that my friends would ask me, they'd be like, oh, you know, can you give me like a voice lesson to help me with my high notes? Or could you help me learn how to belt? So I actually found that not only did I felt that I feel that I was good at that, but I also really enjoyed it. And my prototype for voice teaching, like when I was in school, was, you know, like, I don't know if there's anyone out there who's listening who's taken this type of voice lesson, but like an older woman with like a Pekingese under the piano and doilies over the top. Like, yeah. that was not, I was like, I don't think I want to be a voice teacher. This is not my path in life. Yeah. Um, but once I got the sense that in musical theater, that could feel slightly less, I think, um, that to that mode of, of voice teaching. Right, right. You don't have to give in to that stereotype, whatever. That exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, so no Pekingeses today in the studio. Right. Um, so yeah, I really found that I enjoyed it. And then it was like the ultimate survival job. So instead of having to like up until the point where I 
quit my day job and was actually just voice teaching all the time to pay the bills. Um, I was breaking up voice teaching with being an administrative assistant and being an office manager, uh-huh. which, you know, is kind of the modus operandi for most actors. You're either... Yeah, you find that waiting job or an office job. Exactly. Yeah. You know, um, or babysitting, temping, yeah, all right. that stuff. Um, so once I decided that I was going to leave, you know, working as like an admin and teaching full time, that became a really great way to supplement the auditioning that I was doing. There would be days where I would be at Ripley Greer at eight in the morning, warming myself up to do an audition, do the audition at 930, take two students up the hall, like in 16P or something, go back and do a call back in the afternoon and just be bouncing between two voice lens- two voice lessons I would teach and then going back to an audition. I mean, it sounds exhausting. It was exhausting, though I'm not sure it was necessarily any less exhausting than it would be, you know, running back and forth between, you know, your serving gig or your office, you know? True, true. Well, I mean, even today I had three yeah. auditions. You know, today? Yeah, yeah, today. I, before we Get did this, I did three auditions. And so <laughs> I, I felt kind of crazy. Yeah, you must. Yeah. That's, yeah. It, I mean, and that's the life, you know, yeah. is all this running around and, and packing in your schedule just as efficiently as absolutely possible. So it, it requires more self-startedness. But if you're an actor, you know, you have that self-startedness ideally anyway. So I really encourage a lot of the actors who cycle through my studio, if you have any kind of inclination towards entrepreneurial sort of um, uh, tendencies, if you have a good idea for a business, if you find yourself, if you feel that you're expert in something, I think that um, often we're kind of taught as actors that no matter how many years you spend in the business, that you're kind of a forever student. You <laughs> we're know? always learning. This always, is true. Which is great, which yeah. is absolutely true. Certainly, we're always learning. We should never stop. But at the same time, many of us are experts in many things. So being able to... And certainly over the years, we gain experience in those areas. Absolutely. Yes. Whether it's puppeteering, whether it's improv, whether it's teaching public speaking to the corporate set, there's a lot of different ways in which you could start your own parallel career mm. as opposed to committing yourself to the kind of side hustle or day gig where you feel like you're working a lot of hours for a low hourly rate and not a lot of control over your own schedule. And and, and yeah. you, you brought up the word I was just going to say, mm-hmm. control, because yeah. a lot of what we have in the audition room is not in our control. And so to find exactly. some outlet where it's like, I can manage the schedule, I can do this, I can coordinate this, I can control this part of my life. Absolutely. And there are some downsides, of course, like the hardest boss that you will ever work for, I firmly believe, <laughs> is yourself. Yes. You will probably never let yourself off the hook as much as you would expect a boss to let you off the hook. Um, but even with that being said, you know, if you get a call back, you can cancel the student or you can, you know, reschedule the student, especially if they're actors, they understand and they congratulate you on the callback and you can make that happen. Right. So that was a really helpful thing for when I was auditioning, for sure. For you, what is it that keeps you going? Because obviously, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't book every audition. And so, yeah. and, and now you have this teaching on the side. Is that kind right. of what propels you and keeps you going forward at this point? Yeah. I mean... Like, very early on, I felt like the way that I would qualify, like, am I successful or am I not successful, was an idea of quantity of work, where I want to be booked all the time. Like, I just want contract to contract to contract, back to back to back, 
And if that's what I have, then that's when I'll be like really successful. And I think that that's a really common mindset when you first move to the city. But after a certain period of time, I think most people kind of grow into a different mindset, which is more a quality of work versus exactly. quantity. So once you shift into that mindset, and that feels like a natural progression, I think for a lot of people, then it's a, I personally felt like it was a little bit easier to hear a no or to not be able to go into an audition that day. If you get sick, you get laryngitis. Or if you need to take like a year or two off even, which is actually the, the case that I'm in currently. Hmm. Some like chronic illness stuff has happened. And there's really like I tell my students this all the time. So it's a great opportunity for me to take my own advice. There's no expiration date in musical theater. If you take yeah. two or three or ten years off and you come back and you are that right person. Like my example is usually like for the fifth revival of Follies <laughs> in 2035, yeah. then amazing. Then then you're that right person then. They won't necessarily, I mean, they may ask where you've been for the last, you know, 15 or so years. Yeah. And then it'll be an interesting conversation. But you can always go back to it, you know? Like you can always miss a day or two if you have a health concern or if there's something in your personal life that you need to address. Um, or if you just happen to, like, especially if you're non-union, if you don't get seen that day, it's not the end of the world. If you get no, if you don't get a call back, um, just doing the best work possible, um, yeah, within your own personal abilities. I think it just helps keep things in a slightly different perspective than if you're kind of, you know, hyperventilating over the the idea of, like, constantly right. being booked. And and yeah. you had mentioned in your own life yeah. that there's the, the medical setbacks that you've had. Yeah. And so wh mm -hmm. what exactly happened, and how have you For tried sure. to bridge that, that time away? Yeah, so it was about, it was actually a little bit over a year ago, so, like, Christmas of, that would be, like, 2017. Mm -hmm. I was diagnosed with something, uh, my boyfriend calls it Angelica Spongebobitis. <laughs> For sure not what it's called. Um, It's called ankylosing spondylitis is actually the name of it. So that's a mouthful, which is a mouthful, yeah. right? So now you understand like why he's redubbed it. Um, something yes, much I, I think I would go with SpongeBob as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That which as one should. Um, so it's a it's a form of arthritis, and it it attacks the um, where the tendons attach mainly to your spine, hmm. and also like the the discs in between your spine. So over time, as, as, the, as the disease progresses, and it is lifelong, um, it starts as like really severe sciatica pain and then can branch into like, I have it in most of my peripheral joints at this point, um, high inflammatory markers, that kind of a thing, which, and so at the end of the day, like around like 9 p.m., I'm moving a lot more slowly, which is pretty true for like rheumatological illnesses. Like you get stiffer at the end of the day, right. you get more sore. And so if I were to take a show that was eight times a week and curtain is at 7.30 or at 8 p.m. Th that's just when your body's starting to wind yes, down. Yes, the ingenue becomes an old lady by the time it gets in <laughs> act two. Right. So it wouldn't, it, it's not necessarily the time right now for an opportunity where, you know, you, you'd be in a show like eight shows a week. So add to that, six months ago, I started experiencing what we currently think is probably an entirely separate set of symptoms hmm. um, that are all neurological. So um, like there's been a small movement disorder that I've developed um, that can sometimes flare up and be more profound, sometimes a little bit less, um, some numbness. So we don't know like what's causing that. There's, there's a whole, and I was a very healthy person up until like a little bit more than a year ago. 
They're still trying to. And so pull there was all no signs apart. of any of this coming. No signs, no, of any of this coming until basically it was base. It was happening, um, and I think it's an important thing to to talk about because I I'm fairly public about it. Like I I talk about it on Facebook. I think it's an important thing to mention and to address that these things are scary but also manageable and happening even to people who are young and who are working and continuing to. Um, continue to put out work there's still there's a lot of barriers that a lot of people deal with you know even on the younger side of things on the health side and I've had since you know like sharing some of this stuff on social media a lot of actor friends of mine who have not posted anything publicly reaching out via email via private message and text to say thank you so much for saying something I've been going through something really similarly and feeling guilty about taking time away to go to doctor's appointments, feeling guilty about the chronic fatigue. That's finally what made me, like forced me to stop going to auditions. I would be waiting outside in the line to go in and everyone else would be like nervous and jittery and ready to go in and sing. And I remember the last audition I went in for, and this is when I knew it was time to like to put to press the pause button. I was literally pinching my left hand just so that that way I could wake up enough so that I could go in and do the audition. Wow. So overwhelmingly tired. So I've been certainly contacted by friends of mine or friends of friends who talked about going through similar things. And I think because the industry is so very competitive and there's so many people, especially, you know, if you're a woman, there's there's extra, I think, amounts of women and extra right. competition. Um, that there's some pressure to keep these things to yourself. So you don't want a casting director to hear that right, you, you might don't, not you don't be... want to give them another reason to not cast you. Exactly, right. that you're not at your 100%. Um, but like I was just seeing last week, um, which was, it was absolutely leveling and, and just so beautiful to watch um, Selma Blair's interview that she gave, I believe it was 60 Minutes, um, with her recent uh, multiple sclerosis uh, diagnosis Mm. and uh, using a cane when she went to the Academy Awards. And, you know, she's a very young woman as well, going through these neurological symptoms that that were undiagnosed for, for many years before finally she received a diagnosis. So I think the more that we can give visibility to these things and, and discuss them, um, the more that people realize that they're not alone and maybe we can, you know, have more of a, a public awareness and, and conversation about it. Well, and also that it's not it's not a death knell for your career. Because exactly. I, I just had Caitlin yeah. Kinnanen on, who's in the prom, yeah. and she talked about her diabetes and how she has to monitor yes. that throughout the show, mm-hmm. blood sugar levels. And so she has stage managers monitoring that so that if oh, she gets amazing. too low in the show they like okay you need snacks and they'll tell really? her as soon as she comes off stage so it's it's that kind of support That's magnificent and so she's yeah. wonderfully and beautiful in the show and yeah. so her diabetes yes it's it's an extra step she has right. to take but it's by no means keeping her from doing what she does best. You yeah. Know? And, and I think that that's an important takeaway. Absolutely. And, you know, Selma Blair said in her interview, you know, she said in the middle of it, even with um, she's currently experiencing something called spasmodic dysphonia. Oh, meaning, I've heard of that. Yeah, that she has um, basically uncontrollable movements in her vocal folds. Yeah. So she was like, you know, I'm currently going through this symptom, but the nature of MS is that it's very up and down. So she's like, I think in a year from now, I should be able to go back to acting, and I fully intend to do that. Um, even though I'm going through, you know, myself all of these things, I, I was just in a doctor's appointment last week 
And I asked them because I'd just been offered an opportunity to go vocal direct for celebra- Celebrity Cruise Lines. Right. I leave a week from this Friday for Miami. I'm very so excited, excited, right? Very excited. <laughs> and asked them, I was like, you know, do you think that's okay? And they were like, God, you know, by all means, please go and like take this opportunity to go and lie in a beach and and get out of New York City for, for a hot second. So the fact that I'm actually breaking into a different sort of arena for my career, I actually find that I almost stopped teaching for a moment last year because of the health stuff. I am always at my lowest levels of pain. I am always at my lowest um, experience of my symptoms when I'm teaching and when I'm fully involved with my students. That's when I always do best. So it's a lot of people ask, you know, oh, how are you able to keep going? Like I'm like I'm soldiering on. But it, I, to be totally honest, it's actually the thing that has kept me, I think, healthy. Well, don't, well it's, it's that thing whenever they, mm-hmm. you know, whenever people are older and they they're working their whole life and then they yeah. retire and then all of a sudden yes. they start getting sick and, and they're sluggish. And then, mm-hmm. you, you know, so it's interesting when the body and yeah. mind are kept active and you're doing things, especially something that you love and enjoy. Yes. Then your body kind of I, I, I like to think of your body as a team. It's like, OK, mm-hmm. the team gets together and like, let's do this. Let's keep going. But when you don't have anything yes. to do then the team kind of goes then away. all of a sudden other these other things can kind of rush in yeah um yeah i absolutely experience that every single day and so staying active with the voice lessons that i teach uh going off and now doing this cruise work i'm very excited for that um and then i also run an online course that teaches music theory to actors right which is actually how how i found out about yes. you through theory works right that's right this is basically a program for those of us because I, I took music theory in college mm-hmm. and it was it was Greek to me. I, <laughs> I, I understood the basics of, okay, right, key signatures and chord right. structures. So that was at least somewhat right. helpful. Right. But as far as like once they started to get into the nitty gritty of, right. of the theory behind composing and mm-hmm. what, what I'm looking at in the staff. Yeah. yeah. So you try to break it down into a six-week course, right? Right. So there's a few installments of the six-week course, and they're all kind of broken out um, based on professional skills that actors actually need as they're auditioning. So the first six-week course, um, which is like the most basic music theory that we teach, but also it gets fairly involved um, before too, too long in that course, um, is how to learn sides or how to learn music autonomously. So the skills in order to plunk out your melody at a piano without a coach or anyone else in the room with you, how to mark in your beats into the score, and how to self-conduct yourself through the music so that that way you can be sure on your own that you have learned all of the pitches and all of the rhythms and the tempos um, with a, a high level of fidelity before yeah. you then go into working with a coach. Because I would say that the notes are kind of the basic. Obviously, you mm-hmm. need to know the note you're singing. But I would say rhythms are almost as important, especially with yeah. modern composers. And they'll just throw in an eighth rest in the middle of a measure. And I'm like, but that's the downbeat. But now where do I? And then it like right. throws off the rhythm. And then you're just yeah. trying to catch up. So Well, and that's even the, the area in which like that first course, like, oh, yeah, it's the basic course. But we're very quickly getting into matters of like syncopation in that in that mm-hmm. course which there's a number of things like you had mentioned college music theory there's a few things with those college courses to kind of take in mind or um, take in consideration the first is that they're teaching those theory classes the exact same way that the people who teach that class they were taught when they were five or six years old right 
because the people who teach those classes are wholesale, almost down to the number, musicians, or well, we're all musicians, but instrumentalists in mm -hmm. particular. Yes. So when you play the piano, when you play the guitar, when you play the saxophone, you learn to read sheet music as part and parcel of learning your instrument, and you learn it very, very early. Um, singers can and do get by for much longer before they are expected by their private teachers to learn how to read music. And they might even arrive at college and that's where their first voice lessons actually happen because you need to wait for your voice to develop. Right. So you're now coming to music theory later in life, but you're being taught a theory that works really well for five-year-old instrumentalists. <laughs> it is not a music theory that works really well for adult singers, which is totally different. Um, singers do not have an external instrument. They don't have keys or frets or stops that would help them visualize pitch. And we also can't sing an entire chord. We can only do one note at a time. You can only do time. one note at a time. Right? Absolutely. So singers have wonderful ears, but it's like they have to conceptualize of music with this... It is purely conceptual. It lives totally in their heads. Yeah. So the first thing that I try to do in the courses is give them a kinesthetic and visual understanding of music, really get them comfortable with the written sheet music, really get them comfortable plunking at the piano, that kinesthetic sense, and then also the self-conducting, also kinesthetic. Um, Andrew Byrne is a wonderful voice teacher, and it's very possible that many people out there listening know of Andrew Byrne. He's fantastic. And he talks about the number of senses that we use when we learn. The more senses that we use, the more quickly we're going to learn the information and the more accurately that we're going to learn the information. So if you're just relying on your ear, you're probably learning two to three times slower and two to three times less accurately than if you were to also yes. visually be absorbing yes, that music is true. and kinesthetically putting because it Because th there have been those many auditions where I'm given an MP3 or I'm going to the cast recording and I'm listening to it and they don't always sing exactly what's on the page or Correct. they they take their own character choices and <laughs> you look right. at the music and it's like, I don't think that's what you're singing. And it's completely different. <laughs> right. So right. the ability to sit down and kind of plunk through, and then you have a choice to make, right? Like if you sit down with the sheet music and now you understand what's actually on the page, and then you go and you listen to the cast recordings, as you should, like that's definitely a step that you should take. And now you're comparing two different versions that are maybe not totally the same. If you're aware of both of them, practice both versions. So that way when you're in the audition, they're like, oh, that's so great that you did it the way that it was on the original cast recording. Could you actually do the versions in the sheet music and actually stay really on the beat? Of course I can. Thank you yeah. so much. And then instead of something like a last minute adjustment that now you're sight singing in the middle of an audition, which like that's the most stressful thing you could ever be asked to do, right? Right, right. Um, you've already rehearsed that other alternative and you're, you're prepared for that and you've already kind of worked on it and practiced it. Um, so yeah, that, that college music theory course, there's, there's a few, um, and all the other thing I was going to say about those, they're, they're also teaching you from the perspective of classical music. Yes. So you might learn, for example, like Sonata Allegro form, which is really helpful if you're going to compose a symphony. It's not super helpful if you're going to be belting an 11 o'clock number in right. Gypsy. <laughs> yeah. So getting into jazz harmonies and jazz rhythms like syncopations really early on, which are sometimes not addressed in those music theory classes until much yeah, later yeah, or I, at all. I certainly don't remember because I did theory one and two as part of my music mm -hmm. minor. And I don't remember us ever having a syncopated rhythm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Or ever working out of a vocal score. No, 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 right? no. It was all chords, no lyrics. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, heaven forbid, you know, a musical theater vocal score. Yeah. So, the <laughs> I, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, to do my recital, I had to, like, get permission from my voice teacher, and he had to, like, make sure it was okay that half my recital could be musical theater, and then the other half could be right. the artistic classical songs. Heaven forbid that yeah. you don't do an entire hour of art song. Right, right, right. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so the idea of the course is actually teaching the music theater that everyone already knows and is interested in. From the scores you would actually be asked to sing from in your professional life. Um, Exercising the actual skills that you would need or would find useful on the job. Taught the way that adults and singers Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and it's interesting that you bring up how we're taught because there there was an article that you had in Mm -hmm. in the blog that you were mentioning about how how perfectionism Mm kind of sets into how we're taught in college. And then we bring that into our uh, the audition room and our careers going forward and how that's kind of like killing us as as performers. Absolutely. And so that that blog that I had written, um, Failing Our Singers, is what it was called. That went relatively viral, I guess I could probably say, yeah. at least well, for our industry. Yeah, that was, that was the first thing that I read by you. Yeah. Um, where it, that that article got shared uh, 16,000 times wow. in the course of a single week. So it, it definitely had a nerve. It did. Yeah. And so that, by, you know, in one hand, completely shocked me. Like, utterly shocked me. It was the first blog um, of its kind that I had written. Um, but then also on the flip side, I think less surprising, just given the fact that this is something I think that we all talk about with each other, you know, relatively frequently, but that no one had really voiced in a public way, I think, before. So if you can ever find a topic like that, you know, these things tend to, to hit a, a special nerve, I think. Um, it's definitely, I think, a, a newer manifestation of the business i mean newer you know relative to like let's say like the last 30 or 40 years yeah um but where there's a lot of there's there's a lot of programs now musical theater programs and colleges um classical music programs and colleges where there's a bit of a glut perhaps the teachers and professors themselves are they know that the reflection upon them, whether or not they're good at teaching you, whether or not their college program is very good, is how many of their students go out and book work. Right. So they're right. most concerned with your ability to book work and to oblige a casting director that they are teaching you a list of do's and don'ts so that that way you can book work effectively as opposed to becoming a fully creative and informed artist right. that feels free to create. It's, it's, it's that same mentality that goes into teaching to the standardized test that it, we take. That's We're, such a great analogy. Yeah. That's a really, really beautiful way to put it. And so with this failing our singer idea, how did you figure out ways to combat this, this perfectionism and this type of teaching that's kind of ingrained in us at this point? Um, well, at least in terms of like in my own studio, Um, What I try to do as much as absolutely possible is to approach every lesson that I teach um, instead of from a position of I'm right and this is the accepted way to sing or to perform this particular piece of music to ask the singer what their opinion is of the music, to ask them how they would sing it. Um, what version, if they listened to three or four, they preferred. Mm-hmm. So they're usually asking, you know, well, which one do you think they're going to want to hear? 
Like, I went and I listened to three or four different versions of Rose's turn, and they're all very different. And which one do you think they're probably going to want to hear for this audition? Yeah. I'm like, well, which one did you like best? I'm like, why are you asking me that? I don't know. I'm like, well, it's Patty LaPone's. Sorry, I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> but obviously. Um, choosing for themselves the way to interpret something, as opposed to trying to suss out or mind read you know, what is the current trend for this role or for um, this this particular um, way to perform something? And instead, you know, even making your own version. Yeah. I think that that invitation is in theory out there. Like you hear from a lot of casting directors or teachers or educators. They say, please feel free to make the material your own. And then as soon as you get up to perform and we get down to the nitty gritty, it's like, well, the first thing's first. This is far too slow. Second thing's second. This is a terrible arrangement. Third thing's third. Why are you singing the song in the first place? So, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, I think that we just threw out everything. So this is yeah. great. You know, so the idea that, um, you know, a lot of actors have been doing this for many years if not decades so like i was mentioning before this idea of the actor is the forever student where they're going to have a creative vision handed down to them from a creative team to be basically imparted upon them as opposed to this being a collaborative yeah. environment well and, and it also depends on if yeah. you're auditioning for a new show where you're going to get to Absolutely. originate the role as as opposed to you're now filling in a slot that's been running for 10 years yeah. yeah, which is, you know, obviously two totally different things, of course, as well. Um, but I kind of wonder, too, I know that, that there's this expect, expectation that you're going to, you know, fill into a slot if the show's been running for 10 years, like a Wicked or something like that. But I think we've all seen Wicked at this point. It might be nice to see a slightly different version of Wicked. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't yeah, think that'd yeah, be so yeah, bad Yeah, it was either. interesting because I, I went in for The Lion King for yeah. Scar and so, of course, I'm yeah. listening to the cast recording. I'm, I'm watching videos as much as I can, and I'm, I'm getting a mm -hmm. sense of... Because I'd seen the show live, but then I was just re refreshing. Yeah. And so I, I was, like, taking on that kind of character of Scar and how kind of dismissive he is and kind of giddy, but then also, you know, so I was trying right. to put all these layers and trying to do what I was had seen because the show's been around what 15 20 years now yeah. so, <laughs> so 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 I go into the room and, and I give this scar mm -hmm. that I've been listening to and seen right. and and the first thing he said after I was done it's like okay now just do away with all that stuff and uh -huh. now just sing the song uh-huh and I almost <laughs> didn't know what to do I was like just so sing the song right. so but but he's he's mean. I've I've seen it. Uh -huh, yeah, I have right. to do that, right? Right. So so, and yeah. then and then I went to a Dear Evan Hansen, which mm -hmm. you think would be a little bit more free. It's it's a little newer, yeah. and the music's a lot more contemporary. And they were the ones that like no, on this mm. measure, please take a breath here oh, and then come back. They were it was like down to a science how the music needed to be sung. So Very it was cool. two diametrically posed ways yeah. of approaching sides. That's so interesting, and I think. Like I was saying before, like being able to, like rehearsing it so many different ways, starting with the sheet music, starting with it in its most literal form, you know, looking at all the breath markings, looking at all the little half rests and all the ties and making sure you're dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. And then, so learn it that way first, then play with it, you know, 16 or so different ways on your own so that way you can be ready to, to toss out whatever version, you know, they happen to be asking for, whether it's the very literal version like mm -hmm. in Dear Evan Hansen, or, you know, something that feels a little bit more organic to you and slightly different than what you think the vision you would have thought would have been for, yeah. like, for Lion King. Um, 
is is certainly something that actors can do themselves. Um, I think that there's also some things that we could be doing differently in the industry on the creative team side of things to create environments that also encourage people, I think, to be more creative and more free. Yeah, yeah. I was just speaking with a friend of mine about how certain rooms are very warm and open and you just kind of feel like a cuddly blanket in there and Mm -hmm. and, and you're just like, oh, I want to take you all to dinner. And then there's others where it's just like cold, machine-like, and you're Mm -hmm. just like, you're... I'm almost imposing walking into the room right now. Right. Do you want me to go on? I don't know. And the entire, I think, physical setup of it, I mean, with very few exceptions, we're talking about very harsh um, fluorescent lighting. <laughs> Which makes no one look good. Nobody no looks good. Nobody looks good. And nobody feels at ease. Like, all of a sudden, you feel like you're in a mental ward or something. Right, right. And, you know, you've got this very harsh lighting. You have a table separating you from a creative team that is seated behind it. Right. You're standing in the center of the room. Um, in all the eyes blog. on you. Yeah, all eyes are on you. Yeah. Um, in the blog, I kind of put it like as if you're... you're deigning to ask for a small audience from a higher court mm-hmm. as like as a sycophant you know in front of a royal court um and i'm not sure that that dynamic inherently sets up an idea that says we are all equal collaborators in this together yeah. i kind of wonder i mean i put this in the end of the article i'm not saying that i know like logistically if this is possible but what would it be like if instead of a table, there was a circle of five or six chairs yeah. and you sat down in a circle together and then you did it? How'd that feel? That, that would be an interesting audition room. <laughs> it, it would It's be. like you walk into a circle, please have a seat. And right. you're just like looking at and everyone. there's some snacks maybe and some <laughs> bottles of water. And you just sit down and you chill and like it's sight reading, you know, from, from the score maybe a little bit. They'll take you through it or, yeah. or reading through some sides. And certainly bring in your book if there's something that they want to hear. But it's more like a job interview in a way that like you would go in for a job interview you both sit at a table together on opposite sides of the table and yeah. you're you're two equals you know you would never go into a job interview for Starbucks with six people behind a table and you standing in the middle of a furnitureless room right I mean how exposing is that it, right. and it's and, and, and with no feedback from them behind the table just Thank yes. you. What are you going to be doing? For us. Yeah. And no discussion the opposite way of, yeah. so what is it that you need, then also the opposite direction. Yeah. Um, it's, very, it's very interesting. Yeah. And we don't quite stop to think about it because it's been that way for an awfully long time. Yeah. Um, but I think there's there's something to be said for, like I was thinking about like those earlier, like the group in 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 New York City that um, you know became the public theater. All right. This was this was a group of of actors and they took turns acting, producing, directing and they were all one collective that created theater together. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that necessarily is possible to even go back to now or necessarily even um, what we would want to go back to now, but we've certainly come I think a, a fair distance away from it and it might be interesting to see what ways we could yeah, yeah. Because I was just at, at an audition for a play. This was uh, like a week or two ago, and mm-hmm. the moment I walked into the room, the the woman said, "Hi, how are you? she hugged me, and, and it was just like, "Hi, oh, nice. it's so glad to have you." And then introduced me to everyone behind the table. Hi, how are you? Shaking. I, it was just. It was almost off-putting. Uh-huh. It was so nice. Uh-huh. I didn't know what to like, do with I it. I don't know what to do I was now. Like, oh, hi, everyone. <laughs> and then yeah. she was also the reader and the producer, so it was just like, "Okay, so this is the team. Okay, great, amazing. Yeah." Even though it was weird, it yeah. immediately just kind of put me, 
Oh, okay. Cut through right. the energy we're, of the room. We're, we're good. Yeah. Right. I'm just going to sit here and we're going to do a side. Great. Right. And I think, again, I think that it does start in college, this idea that there are people, and it is, I don't think that you have to be in New York City to create great art. Mm, not even absolutely close. Not. Um, some of the best productions that I've seen in my life were regional theater productions. Um, however, the, the folks who teach in conservatories or in colleges and universities across the country themselves are paranoid about what the current flavor, what the current trends are in New York City so that they are trying to impress upon you, you know, these things that you should do when you show up in New York City in order to please um, those higher ups. And I think that is kind of the the original sin, I think, in a lot of ways. If in that period of time in college, there was more time spent, like I was saying too, I'm like at a voice degree, like why are we only learning art song and bel canto mm, yeah. as if that is the only way in which to sing correctly or beautifully, which is simply not true. Yeah. Um, allowing folks to explore more, to explore their own tastes, as opposed to how can they reflect back the tastes of the creative team back at them, which I think is two totally different things, um, is is something that I think we could explore a little bit more. In yeah, I, I think that it's interesting that you bring this up because I would say the industry as a whole has kind of gone in that way. It's like mm -hmm. us, us as actors, we want to please them behind the table. And so we're, we're becoming very machine-like and mm -hmm. same a lot right. of the time. Same thing, I think, with creators are starting to do that. Mm -hmm. What does the audience want? Well, let's just yeah. give them another movie because they know what that is. Let's give them a oh, movie yes. on stage. Oh, that's and, such an excellent point. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I think we're always trying to like just please the person behind the table or in the audience and be like, let's just give them what they want rather than push any boundaries really or yeah. try to affect anyone positively, negatively. Let's just give them the same and we right. know they'll keep coming. And when things are really boundary pushing, I don't think, like, we never regret that. Like, I don't yeah. think that those shows tend, I mean, maybe I can think of, like, Scottsboro Boys was so wonderful, and it was here and then gone so quickly. Which so, is such a shame. Oh, such a shame. But with very few exceptions, I think that being one of them, the things that push boundaries and that are very different, I think, have a really special life on Broadway. Yeah. Um, I like a fun home. Like a fun home, yeah. exactly. I mean, that was a huge success and should have been. You know, the things that win Tony Awards and that win the hearts and minds of people and, and fans for, for many years to come are, are pieces that really challenge us, you know? Absolutely. I think it's more frequent, honestly. And it, it seems so antithetical. The shows that seem the safest are the ones that, I mean, if we're, we're going to talk about shows that are pretty short-lived, I mean... I mean, I don't want to call out, you know, specific shows, but like a Groundhog Day or something. It seems like such a safe bet, you know, right. and they kind of come and go quickly because I, I wonder if they're almost um, art by uh, focus group a little bit uh, yeah. too much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because the, those those kind of shows come in with a baked expectation mm -hmm. of what they should be. Right. And so you either match that or you don't. And if people are just expecting something and they don't get it, well, then they don't want to go back. Right. And the original writers and creators, it's not like they went, oh, my God, here's this story that I have to tell. No one is telling it. I know how it should be told and I can't wait to do yeah. it. Yeah. When there's a new show on Broadway, especially a new musical, it's like, ah, oh, you know, when Fun Home or Gentleman's Guide or something that's like 
off And you know that that's path. why they sat down to write that thing. Mm-hmm. Not because they were hired to, like, well, we need to make a musical of this movie, and now you're the hired hand basically commissioned to write this thing. Right. I mean, we have a whole, you know, centuries of, of examples from classical composers where they wrote wonderful compositions that were commissioned by the church or by a royal court. It's certainly not impossible to create something beautiful when commissioned. But I think, um, especially this day and age, there's a certain um, rawness and vitality and uh, a story that's more unique. If it comes from someone's unique and personal passions and perspective, then um, from kind of being a hired hand brought on to to do, you know, the newest version of a a movie musical, you know. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. So for yourself, you said you're kind of in a pause right now performing. So you're enjoying the teaching. You're about to go off and do some celebrity cruises. What what is what do you see in the next you know few years mm-hmm. as you start to step back into that audition world again? What do you yeah. see coming up for yourself? Um, well, so for in the immediate term, so I'm still performing, if not necessarily doing musical theater. Um, the time of day, the frequency of doing it eight shows a week, the choreography, these are the things that my body, I can in- inherently tell this is, this is not the time for those things. Right. However, what's been really wonderful is since I decided, like, okay, we'll take a small step away, um, I've been doing some more recording studio work. So um, oh, nice. I just recorded um, in, I guess, I think it was December. Um, a film score, a very good friend of mine is a wonderful composer named Alex Weston, and he composed the film, uh, the score for a film called The Farewell. It was bought by A24, it premiered at Sundance, and it will be distributed worldwide this August. Awesome. So um, Michael Kilgore is the tenor soloist on that film Who score. Who has kind of a good voice. He has an okay <laughs> voice, you guys. Oh my God, he's amazing. Yeah, yeah. He and I did a reading together. It's it's, it's phenomenal. He's phenomenal. He, unbelievable. Like, yeah. I was sitting in the recording booth when, when he was doing a lot of the cues for that film, and it was absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. Yeah. So he's the male soloist. I'm the female soloist in that film. So I Awesome. out this summer um, and a lot of choral pieces to the uh, that he and I actually both sing on in that film um, and some other kind of work like for um, uh, in the studio for commercials and for other films as well and I found that that's been a really great outlet to keep performing it's three or four hours in the middle of the day exactly with no choreography <laughs> with, right right <laughs> you could be tap dancing underneath that microphone if you wanted to but I think a sound engineer would be a little bit um, yes. dismayed and would rather that you didn't um, so that's been a really great way to keep singing um, plus I also sing in a band and that you know to get back to this whole idea of we were talking about from the blog executing material in front of a panel. Yeah. God, singing in a band is the absolute opposite of that. Yeah. You're just free form. You just riff. You go. No one gives you notes. Yeah. It's purely collaborative. Mm-hmm. Everyone in that band, many of them graduated from like NYU jazz program, oh, the NYU jazz program, and we're all really good at music. We all know how to talk about music. We all know how to communicate. Everyone knows what they're doing. So because of that, there's no ego in the room. We just mm-hmm. have a ton of fun. We circle up together and we make music. And that's that's a really, really beautiful way to, to spend an afternoon. I'll tell you that. 
so um, no one obviously out there uh, listening could potentially see me right now. Um, but I'm five feet tall, <laughs> and I've been waiting for the, the day that I can bust out of the, you know, Christine and Phantom sort of uh, uh, prototype. I would love to do something a little older, like a Franca or yeah, something the, like yeah, that. Yeah, some character like work. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think uh, it's a good time to take a pause anyway. As soon as someone wants to hire me um, in a role where I would conceivably hold a, a tumbler of whiskey in my hand while performing, then absolutely, then that's when I'll be ready to come back. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, until that time, where yes. can people find you and how to, uh, you know, yeah. if, if they want to reach out to you about teaching or this yeah, theory works? Yeah, fantastic. Um, so my URL is uh, Amy M. Stewart, M for Marie, amymstewart.com. You could check out um, my teaching link is there and you can book a lesson there. Um, or also check out TheoryWorks. Uh, the website there is theory-works.com. And you can also follow us on social media at TheoryWorksNYC. Well, thank you so much for taking time thank out you, in your studio for thank us. You. <laughs> this has been a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much. Me too. To learn more about Amy and find the details and links talked about in this episode, go to the website winmepodcast.com and you'll see it all there in the show notes. There's also a link where you can help support the work and efforts of this podcast. More importantly, if you enjoy listening to these stories and interviews as much as I love being a part of them, then please share this podcast with those who you think could benefit from these conversations. As always, thank you for joining me and my guest, Amy Marie Stewart, on this episode. And don't forget to subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones, and I'll see you next time.